If you have your Bibles, I want you to open up to the book of Acts, chapter 1. It's where we're going to begin our, our message this morning. Have you ever experienced waiting for someone to return? Maybe, maybe they, they headed off to war and you just couldn't wait for them to get back. Or, or they took an extended vacation or went off, a, off to college and, and they've been gone all semester and now you're ready for them to come home for the summer and, and all that. Time goes by and for some, <clears throat> they may know the exact moment when they're going to expect somebody to come back. And for others, they haven't a clue, and they just wait with eager anticipation and concern as well. You know, that unknown. Maybe you don't know where they've gone or, or when they're going to come back. Years ago, our family had a, had a dog, and my son is here, so he can attest to this. The dog's name was Rocky. Now, Rocky was an interesting character. Rocky was half bloodhound, and the other half was German Shepherd and Chow. Yeah, oh Yeah. All right, but but he was he was just a cuddle puppy, man. He thought he was a lap dog, though he was huge. You know, he would grin at you, and you'd think you're really in trouble. But he he was he was a wonderful dog. He was highly protective of the family and my kids, which was great. Um, but one day, Rocky took off, and he was gone. And we we looked for him and looked and we called for him, and he just he was nowhere. We went out into the country and asked people, the neighbors, and, and, and trying to see if they'd seen him. Nobody had seen him. Then all of a sudden, I started getting reports that they'd seen Rocky run in the fields with a little beagle. And they were everywhere. Well, it was a little over two weeks, and finally Rocky came home. After all we'd done to look for him, there he is, and he is as skinny as a rail and starving <laughs> because he's been out running and, and not being fed properly. You know, as a family, I think we were heartbroken when he left because he he was really part of us. But when he returned, maybe he was more overjoyed than we were, but the joy was definitely there. You see, it's the unknown that stirs within us that feeling of of trepidation, the feeling of anxiety, the the feeling of of confusion and and concern and and, and wondering when and what and where and how and all those different things. Well, we come to our text today in the book of Acts, and we're going to begin in chapter 1, verse 6. We're going to discover that somebody takes off and others are wondering. So let's begin. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, pause a second. Jesus has been to the cross. He's been through the grave, and now he's alive again, all right? And he's been spending about 40 days in and out, uh, interacting with his disciples and other people. And now they've got his attention, and they want to know something. All right, we, we've been waiting this entire time. We understand you are Messiah, you are King, you are the Son of God, and we are looking forward to your kingdom being established. And now they want to know, when does this happen? Are we ready to get this rolling? Are you going to take the throne? Is it going to be here in Jerusalem? Are you going to kick Caesar off of his throne? Are you going to kick the Romans out of here? And What are we going to do? So they want to know, when is this going to happen? So, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says to them, Well, it's not for you to know the times or seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority. 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heavens? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So this morning, I want us to ponder just a few thoughts when we look at this passage of Scripture. We look what just really took place. They're ready to establish the kingdom, and he is out of here. And they're going, where'd he go? What's... And all of a sudden, two angels appear before them, catching them gawking into the sky. And they simply say, what are you, what are you guys staring at? What are, what are you doing? You, don't you realize that, that this guy who's just gone before you into the heavens through the clouds, he's going to come back again, but you guys need to get busy and do what he told you to do. Don't just stand here. Get to work is what they're telling him. So my question as I read this is this, where did he go? Have you ever watched a balloon just... We know it doesn't disappear, right? But it goes beyond our sight. And and I imagine if that's what they, they saw when Jesus just kind of lifted up right before their very presence and then ascended, they'd never seen anything like this before. Where is he gone? Not only does Luke tell us here as he's writing to us the history in this book of Acts, but Mark gives us also just a glimpse of what takes place here. So in Mark chapter 16, verse 19, Mark writes to us and he says, So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken with them, was taken up into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God. So Mark gives us a little bit of clue. He says, He left them, but he ascended and went up into heaven. And there he sits down at the right hand of God. So now we know where he went. He went to heaven. So where where is heaven? I mean, if you get out your maps, that doesn't work, does it? Well, we we can pull out our phones, and that's not going to work either. There's only one way to heaven, and it's through Jesus. At least that's what he tells us. We've got to follow him and walk in his steps. What we do know by some of the things that he has told us that the way to heaven is along this narrow road and once you get to this really narrow gate, you can open it and then you get there. Many people, I think, that they believe they know the way to heaven. But the problem is we're not all going to get there. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 25, tells us that there's a way that seems right to a man, but in its end is the way of death. Sometimes we think we know exactly what we need to do in life, but we really deceive ourselves and we end up making a mess of things, don't we? That's just, that's our nature. In Matthew, Jesus makes this statement in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. He says, you need to enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to 
destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. I struggle with that passage of Scripture. I don't know about you. I mean, did you hear what he just said to us? He said, many and few. And when I think of many and I think of few, what I'm thinking about is most is many, and few is just few. So what he's telling us, most people in our world, most people that you encounter on a daily basis, they're not going to get into heaven. And I have to stop and think, that's, that's not what I hear in my world. Is it what you hear? I mean, everybody's going to heaven. I mean, even all dogs go to heaven, right? So I, I plan on seeing Rocky there one day, right? But that's not what Jesus is telling us. He's telling us it's not an easy route to get there because he's going to have some expectations for us and life's going to be hard if we're going to make that journey. But very few people want to do that. So how do we know if we're on the right path? Well, in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus makes this statement. He tells his disciples, as he himself is preparing to leave and letting them know that he's preparing to leave, he makes them this statement. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That no one comes to the Father, which they know the Father is in heaven, except through me. Now that throws a wrench in a lot of people's plans in our world today because they think they can get there by their good deeds. They think they can get there by their religious, religiosity of life. They think that there are many paths up the mountain to salvation, and there aren't. The only one is through Jesus, and that's it. So that's where he went, and that's where he wants us to come as well. So what's heaven like? I love this old story of a rich man who, who on his deathbed, he'd been very faithful to God and, 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 and all that he'd had. And so he had this conversation with God and his prayers, and he negotiated with God. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes people like to try and negotiate with God, and so he does. And so in his negotiations with God, he asked if God would allow him to bring some of his earthly treasures with him to heaven. I mean, this was highly unusual, and, but this man had been exceptionally faithful to God, and so God granted him permission to bring a few things, just one suitcase. One suitcase was all he could get. And so the time arrives, and the man has presented himself at the pearly gates with his one suitcase. Matter of fact, both hands holding this suitcase because he tried to stuff as much in it as he could at that moment. And so he meets Peter at the gates, and Peter says, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. You can't take it with you. He said, no, no, I, I, got, I got special permission. I've talked with God, and he said, I can bring at least one suitcase of things with me. So Peter says, hang on. So he, he leaves. He comes back. He says, you're right. God said, you can have it. So if you want it, bring it in. So he does. And so as he's beginning to come through the gate, Peter says, hold, hold, hold. Let, me, let me stop you a second, because we've got to be cautious about what you're bringing. So let me see what you got. So the man opens up his suitcase, and there stuffed in this suitcase are these bars of gold bullion. And Peter kind of racks his mind and says, what? 
why are you breathing paving stones? You see, heaven is different than what we anticipate. Those things that we may really value or our world values here may not be valuable there. And there are some things here in this world that people tend to think are inconsequential. But they're ultimately worthy of heaven. We get to heaven, we're going to discover something different. One thing, all things are new. I mean, that's, that's something that everything's new. It's, it's, it's not going to be the same old, same old. So Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 and 2, John writes to us as he's got this wonderful vision of heaven. He says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Wow, what a scene. Yesterday my daughter got married. And, yeah, getting that first moment of viewing her in her dress, um, to me was surreal. This isn't happening, is it? And then to see the look on Nick's face when the doors opened and she came in. Now that was a precious one right there. All right. That's what John is trying to describe for us in this. Man, this is, this is something new. This is something you've never experienced. This is going to be something that's, that's brand new. This is going to be a wedding of the Lamb of God and His bride. And it's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And all those things that you have formerly known to be wonderful, they're kind of like old toys. It's old hats, ladies. Maybe you need to get a new hat for Mother's Day, right? That's what he's bringing. It's something new for us. And in, in all this new heaven, he, he says there's, there, there's not going to be things that we experience on earth. Now, I could go on so many other details, but I just want to touch on a couple. There aren't going to be any tears or pain. And there were some tears this weekend at the wedding. Now, they were good tears, but they were also tears of, oh, my, you know. There was pain this weekend. I mean, that, that's part of it, isn't it? But he goes on in verse 4 of Revelation 20, 21, he says that there in heaven, God is going to wipe away every tear from their eyes, and, and death shall be no more. Neither that shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I cannot wait to get to heaven. How about you? I mean, this world is it's, it's done with. Isaiah 65, 25, we discover the prophet telling us something unique about this place of heaven. It's a place that I'm going to say, a place of perfect peace. So he tells us there in 65, 25, the wolf and the lamb, they shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Perfect tranquility. When a lion lays down with a lamb, 
man, when, when, when a wolf grazes with him without trying to, this is peace. This is a uniqueness. I, I saw on, on uh, Facebook this about a week ago or so, uh, a, a mother duck and her ducklings, and she's hatching them in, and all of a sudden this little alligator crawls into the little area with her. You know, well, then you, you read and you find out the alligator egg hatched with the duck. All right? And so this little alligator thinks it's a duckling. All right? And it will come back and visit the mother duck. And you think, this is odd. Because we know the nature of the beast, don't we? Not in heaven. That alligator will be his nature to be at peace with those things whom he is the predator of. Now that's a beautiful place to be. There's an old song that's entitled, How Beautiful Heaven Must Be. It says, we read of a place, it's called heaven. It's made for the pure and the free. These truths in God's word he has given how beautiful heaven must be. In heaven, no drooping nor pining, no wishing for elsewhere to be. God's light is forever there shining. How beautiful heaven must be. Pure waters of life there are flowing, and all who will drink may be free. Rare jewels of splendor are glowing. How beautiful heaven must be. The angels so sweetly are singing up there by the beautiful sea. Sweet chords from their gold harps are ringing. How beautiful heaven must be. How beautiful heaven must be. Sweet home of the happy and free. Fair haven of rest for the weary. How beautiful heaven must be. I can't wait to be there. So then I think of another question. So what's he doing? I mean, what, what's Jesus up to while he's there in heaven? I know he's left us for a while and he says he's coming back, but what's, what's he doing? This is what we've seen. So I want you to imagine the scene for a second. Jesus has just given his disciples the great commission. He wants them to go into all the world and, and be witnesses of his to everybody, into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, into the ends of the earth. And he sent them out to make disciples and to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and to teach them the world to observe all things that he has taught us. And he'll be with us. No doubt, as he kind of ascends beyond the clouds, that the disciples are kind of dumbstruck. They're not even talking to one another. They're just kind of, what's happened? They're not only hoping for this political kingdom to be ushered in at that time, they're not expecting Jesus to levitate before them and disappear. But yet there's a greater scene that I want you to also think about. This is the one that we see here as Luke is recording for us. But let's look from heaven's perspective for just a second. Jesus is now coming back home. He is returning to his former state of glory and authority and power and position and might and, and adoration. And, and, and can you imagine? See, Jesus was not always like us. He wasn't always that babe that was born in the manger of Bethlehem. 
He is the everlasting from everlasting. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He always has existed as God. He is the eternal Prince of glory. And returning to heaven and presenting himself there as a sacrifice for us, the angels must have been stunned at the sight of a slaughtered lamb approaching the throne. And they're realizing it's Jesus. He's home. Don't ever forget that Jesus has returned to heaven. And he is seated right now at the right hand of God. Upon that throne with all authority and might given to him. He is not a disposed monarch of exile. He is he's on the throne of authority and he's waiting for his enemies to be utterly defeated. And for those who are his allies or as he prefers to call them, his friends, for us to be made perfect to be there with him Charles Spurgeon said it this way to the lover of Jesus it is very pleasant to observe how the Lord Jesus Christ has always stood foremost in glory from before the foundation of world and will do so as long as eternity shall last he is God on his throne. But he's doing something else. He's interceding on our behalf. He's our, our mediator because of what we've done against God. As the priest of the Old Testament would intercede on the behalf of the people of Israel by going into the holy place there once a year to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of Israel, Jesus has become a priest but not under the same covenant where he has to go into the temple in Jerusalem and offer up that sacrifice on a yearly basis. He is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, a kingly priest, and a, and a sacrifice that is only necessary to be used once. And it's a uniqueness in this. So, he is this priest, not under the Old Covenant, but under a New Covenant. The Old Covenant, he has fulfilled its obligation. But he wants to create a New Covenant with us because he knows we can't fulfill that Old Covenant. So he's created a New Covenant, which we partook of the emblems of that covenant by eating of the bread that represents his body and drinking of the, the fruit of the vine that represents the sacrificial blood that he gave for us. It's a new covenant, and that's what he tells them as he's there at that Passover at that last meal with his disciples, and he's transitioning this covenant to this new one. So we turn to the book of, he, of Hebrews, and I want you to get into the chapter 8, and listen to this. I'm just going to let the, the Scripture speak for itself. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth... He would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. 
For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises for if that first covenant had been faultless there would have been no occasion to look for a second for he finds fault with them when he says behold the days are coming declares the Lord when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one of his neighbor and each one of his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, in, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. He's made it available for you to come to heaven. And he has interceded on our behalf and he mediates this new covenant to secure our salvation. There's nothing you can do you can't pay your way in, even if you take a luggage case full of gold bullion. It's not going to happen. There's nothing you can do that he's going to say, man, you see what John did? I need to let him come in. It's not going to happen. The only reason we get to go into heaven is because he is gracious to us and he loves us. And he has provided the way for us through his own sacrifice. But he's also preparing a place for us there as well. That's what he told his, his disciples there in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, as he's getting ready to leave. He's, he's letting them know, I'm going somewhere. And so this is what he says. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And then he makes the statement, in my father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Yeah. Now, one of the unique things about this wedding yesterday is we didn't have to build another room onto the house. Not yet. <laughs> it probably won't. But, it, but, this is, but see, this, when we go back into the Jewish culture and the understanding of what's going on, when the bride and the groom are getting married, there's this engagement period that takes place, and then the groom begins to set to work for that time when he actually marries her, 
And then he can take her home and present her into his house, which is attached in the Jewish culture for the most part, was attached to his dad's house. All right? So Jesus, being the Lamb of God and the groom of the bride who we are, is preparing the place for us to live. Isn't that great? And one of these days, we get to move in with Dad. All right? Man, what, a, what an awesome thing that he's got for us. But you, but you catch the very end of what he said there. He says, and I'm going to take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. He says, if I go, I'm coming back. So that's another question I ask myself. Is he really coming back? Well, yes, he is, but I don't know when. I can't give you a date or a time or any of that. Matter of fact, the day and the hour is unknown. Listen what it says in Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He says, now, concerning the day and the hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven. Nor the Son. He doesn't even know when he's going to be able to come back. But the Father only. Then he makes this, now, now, now really pay attention to this. For as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be riding, grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. <clears throat> I will tell you this as we're kind of getting close to wrapping up here. When He comes, you better look out. Because Paul is going to describe for us here to the church at Thessalonica a little bit of a scene that that it's not just like oh there there he is coming down the street it's a little bit different than that in first Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 16 and 17 Paul says the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first then we who are alive, will, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet Him, the Lord, in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. It's going to be quite an eventful thing. But the problem is we just don't know when it's going to happen. And I don't think He's going to give anybody the glory of estimating or guessing when it's going to take place. That's His he even uses in discussion the terminology that it's kind of like a thief in the night. 
So what do we know about thieves? Especially when they come at nighttime. I mean, do they announce they're coming? Hey, they give you a call. I'm going to be at your house about 3 a.m. on Thursday night, so make sure that the door is locked because I need to break it in, okay? And, and uh, if you want to have some things out, no, man, put them all away. I'll, I'll, I'll untuck everything and find snoop around for myself. They don't tell you their plans. Matter of fact, they wait till hopefully you're either really asleep or you're gone, right? They don't, they don't announce when they're coming. And he says, this is what it's going to be like when Jesus comes again. You're not going to be ready. You're not going to be ready. He's not going to tell you, here it's happening, get ready, I'm coming. I'll be there at 3 a.m. on Thursday evening. No. Listen to what he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brother, you, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night while people are saying, there is peace and security. Man, we got our new security system up at the house and all those, yeah, you think you're safe. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And that's immediate. And they will not escape. But now listen, as Paul writes to us in the church, but you all are not in darkness. Brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day... Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for the helmet of hope and salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. He is coming. And we should be the ones who are ready for it. We should be thinking, it could be tonight. Will I be ready? And if, and if I fall asleep, I'm okay. He's still going to come, all right? Because I'm putting my hope and my faith and my trust in Him. Jesus makes this statement in Matthew 24, verse 43 and 44. He says, I want you to know this. That if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So, what am I supposed to do now? I think, first off, we need to live actively. We, we don't mean to be passive in our lives. We should, be, we should be filled with anticipation of Jesus' return that it could be, maybe he'll show up for chili. What do you think? Wouldn't that be great, you know? Uh, yeah, he wins the bid on all the desserts <laughs> because nobody can outpay what he's given, right? Wouldn't that be awesome, though? Are you ready for that? He tells a couple of, of parables, matter of fact, about three of them, in the, in the recorded in Matthew chapter 25. There's this first parable about, about a, a bunch of young women, 
that are anticipating a bridegroom coming. And so they, they get their lanterns and they head out in the nighttime and, and they're ready there. But of these ten ladies, five of them forgot to bring extra oil with them. And he was a little delayed in showing up. And when their lamps start to flicker and, and fade, they want everybody else to share their oil. But the other girls said, uh, we, normally we would, yeah, but if we give you some, then ours may go out and we'll have to leave too before he gets here. And so those five, they took off and ran back to their homes to go get extra oil. But while they were gone, guess who shows up? The groom. Jesus wants us to understand that we've got to be ready. We've got to anticipate this. You've got to be prepared ahead of time. Because when you're not prepared and you run back home, he might show up at that time. He goes on, he tells another parable about talents. And so living actively means that we are to invest our time wisely for the kingdom. We're supposed to be, be actively involved in using our gifts and our talents and abilities and the things that we have been blessed with by God to multiply things in this world. And so these gentlemen were given a certain amount of money, and what they did with it was each different. But a couple of them really doubled what they had, and when the master came back, it was like, hey, this is great. You know, you did a good job. And he, and he applauds him. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You were, you know, faithful with a few things. And now look what you've got. I'll, I'll give you many things to be in charge of. But then he went to the one that had just one little talent. And maybe he knew something about the guy. I think so. That gentleman, he went and he buried it because he was afraid that someone might steal it or he, he didn't want to do it. So when he saw the master coming back, he went and got it back and he says, here's what you gave me. And is the master happy because he kept what he'd given him? Not in this story that Jesus says. Jesus says, what do you, what do you mean? You know that I'm a man who I glean from a harvest of things that I did not plant myself. That I get, you should have at least put that which I gave you and put it in a bank and drawn just a little bit of interest. Instead, you're a wicked, lazy servant. We've got to be ready. We've got to be active in using the things. But secondly, we've got to be faithful. We've been entrusted with much, so we must be faithful to God with what he's given us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, it says this is how we should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. He's given us something there. Moreover, he says, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Be faithful with what he's given you. You see, because we are each a steward of the blessings he has poured out for us. We need to use them wisely. Finally, we need to live with a focus on others. 
Now, according to the Scripture, Christians are held accountable for what we've done with our talents, what He's given us, right? But also how we have loved our neighbor. And so in Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells the church there at Philippi that if they have any encouragement of being in Christ, he says in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, if there's any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affliction or sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now listen to what he says. Not that you guys are all together and you've got this one common goal and purpose and objective. This is what you need to do. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. What are we called to do? We're called to care about the people around us because He does. And He wants them to be there with Him in heaven. Matter of fact, He's probably working on their room maybe before He gets start working on yours. I don't know, I'm just guessing. And if you don't tell them about it, I wonder how big my room will be. You know, it's not about what we receive in heaven. Because the rewards, the trophies, the accolades, the crowns, the jewels, the whatever we want to call it of heaven, they're, in, they're insignificant compared to being with Him. Right? Being with Him. Jesus did ascend into heaven. And he is coming back. Are you ready? Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for today. I am grateful for what you've done for me. I mess things up all the time. I don't know if there's really a day that goes by that, 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 I, that I've done everything right. But you've told me it doesn't matter. That your love has the ability to, to cover over all my sins. And you love me enough that you've called me to come home with you. Father, I look forward to that day. I can't wait to be dressed fully as that bride coming down out of heaven. The Jerusalem ready for that moment that you have ordained even before the creation of this world. Father, help us to share that truth with other people that they as well can come home. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.